You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. I want to pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your word. The word is powerful, it's living, it's active, it's alive. We know that through your word, um, you have a purpose to do a work in our hearts, in our lives. And so we ask, Father, now, collectively together, that you would come and that you would do a work of transformation, as we talked about a little bit ago inside of our hearts and our lives. You would do a work of change inside of us. Father, we ask that you would um, come and, and cause hearts that were dead, not breathing towards you, not interested in you. We ask that you would cause those hearts to be transformed and become alive, be set free, be oriented towards you. We ask, God, that you would come and take hearts that are full of depression and replace that with joy, hearts that are full of fear, replace that with courage, hearts that are um, full of brokenness, and uh, change those hearts to be whole again. Lord, these are just a few things that we can think of, that I can think of this morning, that you could come and do through the preaching of your word, and yet, Father, we know that there is not enough words in the alphabet or in the human language that could describe all of the work that you could do, so Father, we ask that you would come and do what we've asked that and then some. Father, we just ask that you would do a work in us, a transformation. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. So a lot of things have happened in, uh, in our study of the book of Joshua so far. We've been tracking through the first eight chapters um, of Joshua over the last uh, few months, and um, I think um, if you think back to the first eight chapters, in light of the verses that I just read, it can make these verses feel a little bit like a lull in the action, maybe. Um, if you think back, um, I think we remember at the beginning of the book of Joshua, remember God's kind of miraculous commissioning of Joshua to lead his people into the promised land. It was kind of a big moment where God shows up and he's like, hey, grab my people and go. Don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Um, so there was that commissioning in the beginning. Shortly after that, we remember God's um, 
um, miraculous intervention with Israel as he helped them cross a river in the midst of flood season. So that was kind of a, a miraculous, up-tempo, upbeat kind of a section that we worked through too. Uh, probably remember um, God's uh, other intervening help that he gave through um, a woman named Rahab, right? Prostitute. God used her in the midst of that story about the spies. Real unlikely servant in our minds. Like, why would God use somebody? But if we look at ourselves, we go, well, there's a reason, because God uses broken people and crooked sticks to draw straight lines, right? So there's that story. Um, how about the story of the circumcision, right? And Joshua took all the men of Israel and circumcised them before they could go to battle against um, Jericho. A painful day. Okay? All of us men probably at least get that. If you're a mom and you got a kid and you were there and you had a son, Painful day, I'm thinking, for full-grown men to have this happen. Um, so there was that story of circumcision before battle. Then there was the victory of Jericho. That was a fun story, wasn't it? Um, walls didn't just fall out. They didn't just fall in. They actually went, because there was this upward pressure from heaven that pushed them down. There was one home still standing. What home was that? Rahab's home, right? Um, so there was that story. Um, next, there was kind of the devastating loss at Ai. Um, tough day, and then that subsequent victory that came right after that. So there was a loss at AI, and then the victory at AI. So a uh, long story short, this story has been a really fast-paced narrative um, that basically, I think, highlights the ups and the downs of our own struggle with obedience. And it also serves um, to highlight God's faithfulness in victory for us. Um, and then through all of that, there's a truth that I think really remains um, that I found in a commentary this week. As one author says this in regards to the whole narrative so far, there can be no rescue without coming under the rescuer's rule. There can be no rescue without coming under the rescuer's rule. See, it's one thing to win a victory, but it's an entirely different thing to lay hold of that victory to grab a hold of it by renewed commitment to God. Close that quote. But that's exactly what we see happening in the verses that we read today. What's happening is Israel is laying hold or grabbing hold of the victory that God has given them. And the way that they're doing it is by coming under the rule of the rescuer. So just if you can keep that kind of picture in your mind as we work our way through it, I want you to look at the first couple of verses. Verses 30 through 31. What's happening here? Joshua is building an altar. Pretty simple, right? First glance, seems pretty straightforward, and it is. It's not as simple as you might think. Sure, you see Joshua, he's grabbing some uncut stones, he builds an altar. Offers up some burnt offerings, sacrifices some peace offerings. Fairly straightforward, fairly simple, right? Yes, very straightforward. Not so simple, though. Um, there's actually lots of context behind what's happening here. There's, now, there's a lot of complexity to what's taking place, especially when you take into account that Joshua is not just doing this because he thinks it would be a fun thing to do in the midst of all the action, 
Joshua is doing this because it, it's according to script. There, there's been a story that's written. There's been instructions that have already been written to Joshua. He's basically following the word of the Lord in regards to proper worship. If you were to make a note and just go back and look with me at some point at Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 29 through 30, as well as Deuteronomy 27, verse 1 through 8, you would see in those two places in Deuteronomy that the Lord actually tells Moses where this altar building ceremony and the offerings that they make are to actually take place. So long story short, a long time ago, God told Moses, when I bring you into the promised land, you're to do this. <coughs> word for word, detail, it's in there. Long before God ever led the people of Israel across the Jordan River, through the battles of Jericho and Ai, God wrote this down. This is how you will do this when you get into the promised land. So, the other interesting thing about this is that um, the place that Joshua is building this altar is in a valley called Shechem. It's in between two mountains. You might remember there's an ugly mountain and a beautiful mountain. Might be just a good way to remember it. Ugly mountain, beautiful mountain. Valley in between, two miles wide. It's called Shechem. That's where they're gathered up today. And it's about, um, if I remember right, it's about 20 miles north of the cities of Jericho and Ai. So if you can just picture this in your mind, um, come across the river after being in the wilderness for a long time. God brings you across the river in flood season. Miraculous. Both those cities, Ai and Jericho, they're watching what happens. You might remember that Jericho was all huddled up behind their walls. They're scared of the God you serve. Right? They got the doors locked. You've got to get through Jericho and Ai before you can go to the Valley of Shechem. You understand what I'm saying? These two massive cities controlled the region. For you to get to the place that you're going to worship the Lord, you got to get past those two stronghold cities. Follow? And what happens? Well, Jericho is miraculous. AI eh, kind of got some things in the way, right? Some secret sin going on in the camp. God's got to judge that. You got to get that dealt with. And then God can take out that enemy. And then you can go travel that 20 miles to the Valley of Shechem between these two mountains so that you can worship God. The question is, what's the significance of these first two verses for you and for me? For, for any Christian that's living today, what is the significance of this episode for us? I don't want to rush to answer the question too fast. I just want that to simmer a little bit for you as we work our way through here. But I want you to notice, I want you to think again, don't miss the sequence of events. I think it's really important. Really important to the uh, significance. Sequence of events that leads to Israel worshiping around a bloody altar in a valley called Shechem after experiencing the rescuing power of God, right? As they come out of the wilderness, as they cross a flooded river, as they defeat Jericho, as they get their butts kicked at Ai, for secret sin. And then, and then they defeat Ai after dealing with that sin. This is the sequence of events that leads to this day of worship in this valley. Israel's not just taking a break from the action. They're not just saying, wow, that was an intense season, now let's take a break. 
That's not what's happening. Israel is actually worshiping as Joshua gathers them in the valley, and it takes work. They actually had to go 20 miles, right? Had to walk that distance. So here Joshua gathers them in the valley for this, and that's the second thing that I see in verses 32 through 33. Joshua actually gathers the people together. Now, <clears throat> in our Western mindset, <clears throat> we oftentimes approach the gathering of God's people on Sundays or throughout the week um, uh, from a consumer mindset, more kind of like what I talked about earlier. <clears throat> We approach the idea of gathering from a consumer mindset more than an investor mindset. We, we gather with other people that we, um, that we want to get together with because we like what we get out of the experience. <coughs> I don't know if I see that happening here as Joshua gathers the people. I don't know that they're gathering just because they like the experience. And Joshua doesn't get together with all these people in that valley so he can feed a bunch of consumers. It's not what Joshua's doing. I would argue that all throughout Scripture, you probably don't see that kind of mentality. One problem, I think, for us is that we live in the Western part of the world, and I think um, this is huge for us. Our hearts have been shaped by consumerism more than I think we really understand sometimes. Um, So, you look at this passage, you see that Joshua gathers the people together so they can worship the God who has just redeemed them from the wilderness of their sin. He's just provided a way through a flooded river. He's just absolutely annihilated the enemies who stood in the way of their worship ceremony. Don't don't miss this. Um, Everything about this gathering of Israel in the valley between two mountains, it was bathed in blood. Everything about this worship ceremony was bathed in blood. It was filled with fighting leading into it was centered on the God who had rescued them miraculously. See, the, the setting of the Valley of Shechem between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, it's very important. I, I referenced this a little bit ago. You got an ugly mountain and a beautiful mountain. They're all gathered into this valley, two miles wide, 20 miles north. And you got half the people on one side in front of one mountain, the other half on the other side of the mountain. And in the center was the Ark of the Covenant, right? Um, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was also, um, there was also an altar um, where they were offering sacrifices, blood. On top of that, Joshua made copies of the entire law. So what do you have? What, what is this setting? The people of God, this is Israel. They're assembled together in the presence of God, the Ark, right? With the Word of God, which is the law. And they're in a valley between two mountains. And those two mountains are going to be very important as we move forward. One's rocky and barren. The other one's beautiful and fruitful, right? What do you think the significance of gathering God's people into setting like this is? Why did Joshua gather the people together for a worship ceremony between an ugly mountain and a beautiful mountain? What significance does that have for us today? Why does it matter? Right? Keep that in mind. Third thing that we see, verses 34 through 35, is that Joshua preaches God's word. That's the third thing that we see. 
In these final verses, what Joshua does is he preaches every word of the law of God to every person who has gathered in the valley between those two mountains, an ugly, desolate mountain and a beautiful, lush mountain full of fruit. No one was excluded from the gathering. Everybody was there. The ex-prostitute Rahab, she would have been there. Everybody's there. Young, old, insider, outsider. Why are they there? They're there for the preaching of God's word. But they're there for the preaching of God's word amidst a bloodbath of an altar. Let me ask you a question. Why are you here this morning? Why? Because you like the people you see across the room? Maybe. It's not bad. Why are you here this morning? What drew you through those doors into this room? Why didn't you stay in bed? Why didn't you stay out last night party? Maybe you did. I don't know. Why didn't you sleep in? What brought you here? They're gathered in this valley for the preaching of God's word amidst a bloodbath of an altar. And let's think about the sermon that Joshua preaches for a minute. Think about the sermon that he preaches. How would you summarize his sermon? If you were to walk up to Joshua at the end and say, great job, preacher, good job. How would you summarize the good job that you're telling him he did? What words would you use? If you studied this passage for yourself on your own time, and you sat down with your journal, and you asked that one question, what's the center of the message that Joshua preached? What would you, what would you say? If you look back at verse 34, I think you can kind of see a summary. Joshua, Joshua preached all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse. So I might summarize the sermon based on that verse um, as a sermon that was about blessing and cursing, right? So Joshua preached a sermon about blessing and cursing in between two mountains, one that is ugly and barren and desolate, and it's fruitless. No fruit on that mountain. Not, Not a place you'd want to go to for your vacation because it's absolutely ugly. It's a place of... Death. Things are dying on that mountain. And then there's a beautiful mountain on the other side, two miles away, and it's beautiful. It's got fruit growing, right? Joshua's preaching a message about blessing, cursing. And in the midst of all that, there's a bloody altar where the sacrifices for sin were made and an offering of worship was made. And get this straight. The sacrifice for sin came first. What came after that was an offering of worship. Do you struggle to live a life of worship? If you do, it's because you have yet to grasp hold of the victory that is yours in the cross of Christ. You have yet to apply the blood of Christ to your life. In a way, that sets you free to worship. Because it's only by the sacrifice of Christ for your sin and for my sin that we are even enabled to then give an offering of worship to the Lord. So 
So if you show up here on Sundays, or if you show up to a gospel community throughout the week, and you think it's all about you and what you get out of that experience, you have yet to go back and lay hold of the victory that belongs to you in Christ Jesus. Because if that victory belongs to you, if Jesus gave his life, if he was the sacrificial lamb that died at that cross, it radically transforms the way that you gather with God's people. Transforms. It takes us from being spiritual infants who are absolutely um, in need of someone to hold us so that we can get nourished. That message of the gospel transforms us from that into maybe toddlers or maybe teenagers or maybe young adults or maybe you know, adults who can feed themselves. And when you reach that place, then what happens when you walk into a gathering of God's people or you walk into a community like the neighborhood we're in, south of the tracks, is that you're sustainable. You're able to walk on your own. You're feeding yourself. You're able to open the microwave and put your food in it, right? That's a picture of transformation in terms of just like the growth from being a baby who can't do anything for themselves to an adult who can take care of others. You might even think of this even further in terms of being like parents and grandparents, right? Um, how many of us in this room have spiritual grandbabies? That's a really important aspect of transformation in a church family. So what I'm saying to you is if, we, if any of us in this room are at a place where we're like, no, nah, I think I'm good. I've grown a lot over the last few years. I think I'm just going to kind of coast along. Can I just show you that Man, there's, there's lots of area that we can press into where we can continue to grow. And if you look at this picture of what's taking place here, see Joshua and Israel worshiping between those two mountains around a bloody altar where the sacrifices for sin and the offerings of worship have been made. So could it just simply be that some of the significance of all this for us uh, is some of the stuff that we've talked about. Um, but could it be the significance for us is that when we gather as a church, that we actually gather um, in this tension. Um, that there's the tension of the picture of a barren life without Christ and, and a fruit-filled life that is actually possible with Christ. Could that be the picture that's here? Um, could it be that when we gather for worship and preaching that we should be ever mindful of the devastating effects of the curse of sin? Could it be that we should be mindful of the available blessings of the sacrifice of Christ at the cross of Calvary? Um, would, it, would it surprise you to the, just think about this passage Christologically, that, that this passage points to Christ all the way through? That it's not about a war between a quote-unquote holy church and then an unholy neighborhood around us? That that would actually be a way of seeing this passage in a really off way? Um, could it be that, that this entire episode actually points forward to Christ coming to this earth to deal with something? What do you think Jesus came to deal with? He came to deal with our worship dysfunctions. That's what he came to deal with. The, the, the passage that Patrick read in our worship service today where he stated that that was a massive portion of what our church is really founded on. It's the story of the woman at the well. And the woman at the well was a prostitute. She came 
to the well at midday because she'd been worshiping something. What had she been worshiping? Herself and the men in her community. And she has this encounter with Jesus, a man who shouldn't have even talked to her because she's that kind of a woman, right? I mean, that's the way the church gets after things today, isn't it? Don't, don't go near those people. They're going to rub off on you and hurt you. Bad company corrupts good character. Stay away, stay away. Jesus does something radically different. He goes and he sits down at that well with that woman and he just calls out her sin. And then points out to her that hey, it doesn't matter whether you worship on that mountain or this mountain. What matters is that you worship Christ in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worship we see. And what do you think happens with the woman at the well that Patrick read about? After she heard this from Jesus, the Savior, what does she do? She goes back to her city. Goes back to her city. And she says, man, you got to come meet this guy. This guy that I met at the well. And I'm sure there's some people in the community who are like, here she is. Tell us about a dude she met. Right? you got to come meet this guy. Man, he told me everything about myself. There's no way he could have done this unless he was a prophet. In fact, he could be the Savior, the Messiah that we've all been looking for. Can I just ask you, like, where are you at this morning in terms of seeking the Messiah? Like, did you seek him once at a camp when you were a kid? And you're like, man, past that, I'm good now? And then you stopped seeking him? Where's your hunger and your thirst for more of Jesus? Where is it? And does it come out in your worship of him, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week? Are you dragging butt in here on Sunday mornings because you're so worn out spiritually that you just need to get re-energized? Or are you coming in like, hey, I'm full of Jesus and I'm ready to give him away. That's worship. That we would all come in so full of the Holy Spirit, so full of Jesus, that we'd be overflowing, that we would be a gift to one another rather than being spiritual babies who suck on each other. Ugh. How about that? I think it'd be really important for us to think about this. What does she do? What does a woman do in that story after going back and telling the city that? The whole city comes with her like, man, we're going to meet this dude that she's talking about. They come out with her. They meet Jesus. And at one point they say something. Remember what they say? They say, hey, we believe in you, Jesus, not just because she told us about you, but because we heard you for ourselves. You know what that speaks to me? It's called ownership. That's what that's called. They're not just doing it because the woman said, or they're not just doing it because Pastor Joe said. They're actually owning this thing, and they're like, hey, we met Jesus. And because I met Jesus, I believe everything that you're saying to me because I've heard you for myself. Can I just ask all of you, what did you hear Jesus say to you this week? I'm not asking for every day this week. I'm just asking for one thing. What did Jesus say to you this week about your growth? What did Jesus say to you this week about what he believes about you? What did Jesus say to you this week that would change you and transform you? Because when you start hearing Jesus for yourself, you know what happens? You start walking on your own a little bit by the Spirit's power. And you start living lives of worship that is centered on Jesus rather than centered on self. One author says that this passage of Scripture helps us to think about the heart of worship. Here's how he says it. 
He says, we live in a culture that wants to be self-sufficient. We don't want to have to trust or to be dependent upon anybody. We want to run our own lives in our own way. We are adept at creating and worshiping any number of idols as substitutes for God. But behind them all stands the great idol of self. Governing our lives with all the false confidence of creaturely pride in rebellion against the Creator. Obedience then becomes a hateful concept. Since we have come to believe that no one, not even God if He exists, has the right to tell us what or what not to do. Close quote again. Why would anyone ever change from that default position? That's our default position, right? Why, why would anybody ever change from that position of I'm living life my own way to I'm living life God's way? What would ever make a person move from being an Achan that we read about to being a Rahab? The answer is transformation. That's the answer. We must be transformed by the gospel. Here's the thing. The law is never going to change you. Never. But can I just tell you the other default position for us is the law? There's a little Pharisee living inside of every one of us. There is. The law is not going to transform you. It's it's only going to convict you. (laughs) The law is only going to show you how you failed. The law is only going to show you how the blessings of a godly life have been completely crushed under the curse of your sin. That's all the law was really designed for. There's other uses of the law for sure, but primarily that's the use of the law that Paul talks about in Galatians. So what's going to lead to transformation in your life? What's going to transform you from being a person who just does things his own way to someone who now does things God's way? What's going to transform you in that place and and not even put you in a place where you just dress up with a bunch of spiritual language? Because I think we all know how easy it is to continue doing things our own way and just dress it up with spiritual language, right? God, God told me that I should probably do that. Oh, okay, I guess there's not much I can say anymore, is there? Right? So what's going what's gonna to stop that? What's going to change that? Here's what I think. I think the key uh, that unlocks that um, question, the key that paves the way um, to set us free is actually found in the Old Testament. How about that? I think it's actually found in Exodus. I actually think it's found in the law. Is everybody confused now? Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Here's the reason I say this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 is the introduction to the book of the law that we read about here in Joshua. It's the introduction. And here's what God says in his introduction. Listen to this very closely. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Think about that for a minute. Let me say it again. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Have you seen God do something in your life? 
Have you seen God do something in the world that you live in? Are there things in your life that you go, only God could have done that? God is saying here, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This was God's opening line to the giving of the law. Joshua preached it in that valley between two mountains. The reminder of rescue came before the command of obedience. God's rescue of our lives and the cross of Christ, that's the key to transformation that results in obedience. The question remains, is have you come to live under the rule of the rescuer? Are you living in the shadow of the mountain of blessing? Or are you living in the shadow of the mountain of cursing? Is your life characterized by the desolation of sin or the fullness of fruitfulness? Why are you here today? Do you think that if we stopped living for Jesus tomorrow, if, if a tornado came through and knocked this building out and we just closed up shop and quit being the well, would anybody care? Would anybody south of the tracks know who we even are? Has your life been so transformed that your worship is not about you anymore, but it's actually about Jesus, which then transforms the way you live in this community? Can you say that? Why are you here today? Why will you gather with God's people throughout the coming week? What will it look like for you to come under the rule of the rescuer this week? I think for all of us, this means a reorientation of our priorities. It's not like you just start attending church. Somehow everything's fine now. Christian life is always about advancement. It's about moving forward. It's about growth in Christ. It's about continual transformation. It's about change in every aspect of our lives. It's always about a continual reorientation of our affections and our devotions. Well, for some of you, <coughs> this means reorienting your days to actually spend some time in individual worship. It means a reorientation of your days to pick up your Bible, blow the dust off of it, open it up and read it for yourself. For some of you, this is going to mean that you set aside some intentional devotional time to pray. That way, when you gather with God's people, it becomes an extension of your own worship of Jesus rather than trying to live off of other people's worship of Jesus. It means taking a step forward in your growth, right? Well, for others of you, um, coming under the rule of the rescuer might mean just surrendering your life to Jesus for the first time. Um, and that might be this moment today for you. might mean recognizing that you have actually tried to play the role of God in your own life. And you need to recognize that Jesus gave his life for you in a very horrific way. Um, recognizing that you need to come to a place where you are trusting in Him so that you can be transformed into a worshiper of Him instead of a worshiper of yourself or an enemy of Him. Now, for others of you, um, this kind of a realignment of priorities might just simply mean 
that you actually legitimately confess some secret sin to others. That you actually get some real accountability instead of pretending like you have accountability. Get some real accountability with somebody who's going to get in your face about your sin and get in your face about the way that you're walking. It might be that you pursue that real accountability, confession of sin. It might be that you get some real disciplines, spiritual disciplines in place, that you start pursuing Jesus that way. The point of all this um, is that God wants to lead you and I into the blessing of the cross of Christ. That's the reality. As you survey and think about uh, this ugly mountain of sin on one side, and you think about that beautiful mountain of freedom on the other side, with the bloody cross of our Savior at the center, how could you not come under the rule of our Rescuer? Well, what would stop you from wanting to be rescued? Uh, in conclusion, um, I just want to say that if you are living your life in disobedience to the Lord's commands, and if, and if you hear me say that when I say if you're living your life in disobedience to the Lord's commands and you check out, that's a tough place to be. If you're living your life in disobedience to the Lord's commands and you're experiencing the curse of the consequences of your sin, what does that tell you? I'm going to turn my mic off for you guys, okay? You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.